So I'd, I'd like to welcome everyone here this evening. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the, the head of the International Relations Department, and the department is hosting um, tonight's lecture. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce uh, tonight's uh, speaker, Professor Tamila Nankina. Um, Tamila has, has um, written uh, widely on Russia and other post-Soviet states, uh, national and subnational authoritarianism, uh, and the impact of um, historical legacies on contemporary politics, which of course is the subject of um, tonight's uh, inaugural lecture. Why inaugural? Um, well, really tonight is as much uh, an opportunity for um, the department and the LSE to recognize and honor um, Tamila's accomplishments, her scholarly accomplishments, and her contributions to the um, to the school, as it is a, a chance for us to learn about her current research agenda. The LSE has a long tradition of um, honoring recently appointed chairholders as new members of the LSE's professoriate, and tonight we're following precedent. Um, let me say a few words um, about um, those accomplishments and contributions. Um, Tamila is uh, the author of two well-received um, books on uh, subnational politics in Russia and dozens of articles in um, many leading journals. Um, and I, I think what's really interesting about her kind of corpus of work is some of them are top journals in international relations. Some of them are leading journals in comparative politics and political science. And then in her spare time, she publishes stuff on, in post-Soviet uh, 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 studies in various journals. Um, uh, there um, and uh, and topics that really range from um, comparative democratization to international socialization to post-colonial development and she also finds time she gave this is the second talk that she's given today and the second time I've introduced her today uh, she gave a talk earlier today to um, our students in IR 101 on is Russia winning uh, the global uh, information war. Um, and uh, so she's really got a tremendous range. She received her, her DPhil from uh, Oxford, and before that, she, her master's at uh, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, Tufts University in, in uh, the Boston area, and a BA in linguistics from Tashkent, uh, in the Tashkent Institute of Oriental Studies in Uzbekistan. She's held research appointments at Humboldt uh, in Berlin, Humboldt University in Berlin, Stanford University, uh, and the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., along with prestigious research grants from uh, the British Academy and the ESRC. In the IR department, she, she teaches a very popular course on Russia and Eurasian um, foreign and security policy. She also serves as the deputy head of the department um, for uh, research, so we work a lot together. And perhaps most importantly, she actively supervises a number of our promising PhD students, and I see them in the audience here. Um, so 
So tonight, uh, Tamila is going to share her insights from current research on pre-Soviet Russia and its implications for understanding contemporary Russian politics and society. Um, as usual, after uh, the lecture, there's going to be a chance to put questions um, uh, uh, to Professor um, Lankana, and I will uh, do my best to get all the questions uh, in. So um, if you haven't, uh, one last kind of housekeeping note. If you haven't turned your phones to silent, please do. And with that, please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Professor Lankana. Peter for a very generous introduction. As Peter said, it's an opportunity to kind of uh, to talk about uh, my promotion, but it's also an opportunity for me to thank the LSC, the department, and indeed other various instit institutes and departments within the LSC for all the support that they've been giving me uh, over the years. This is my sixth year. And, and to Peter personally for all the support in professional and career development that I've received uh, over, over these years. Uh, I wanted to thank also my own department, the International Relations Department for funding that I received for this particular and other projects, but also the Department of History, International History that awarded me a Paulson grant, <laughs> the International Inequalities Institute that has also awarded me a grant for, for this research. So LSE is a great place because there are all these wonderful <laughs> institutions that provide the intellectual as well as the financial nourishment for all the research that goes, go, goes on here. So thank you very much uh, to, um, to Peter and uh, to, uh, to, to my host institution for, for all the support. So I wanted to start my lecture on uh, the reproduction of historical legacies in Russia and their implications for inequalities, democracy, um, and variations in socioeconomic inequalities across Russia's regions, I wanted to start my lecture with this very evocative image. And I say evocative, this is not my family, this is a family of a um, pre-revolutionary bourgeois, quote-unquote, I, I put that in quotation marks, and it's very evocative of the world. Uh, of pre-revolutionary Russian society that many of us think has been swept off in the kind of Moloch, in all the destruction of the um, revolution that followed. So when we think about the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, these are the kinds of images that are conjured. And very much, we have, a lot of us have internalized the kind of revolutionary state-building paradigm of wholesale destruction, not least and particularly the social structure that we associated with the pre-communist past, the destruction of the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, and the creation of a new society with equal and with, with significant socioeconomic inequalities in a way that, as the regime liked, liked to portray, was un unprecedented in, in, uh, in, in the world at the time. And um, what I found interesting is last year when we were celebrating, or, or some, some people were celebrating, but 
marking the 100th uh, anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, what amazed me in a lot of the media commentary and indeed scholarly commentary among historians and political scientists was, was how much of that revolutionary state-building paradigm continues to influence our thinking about what happened to Russian society after 1917. So the discourse was very much about change, destruction, annihilation, obliteration. So I prefer to talk about the triumph of society against the Moloch and the awesome destructive power of the Soviet state. And increasingly, I've done so by digging into archives. This, for instance, is a copy of a letter I've dug up that uh, one of the professoriate from uh, a university that the Bolsheviks tried to close down in the region of Samara, pleading them, please do not do this. You're destroying the intellectual heritage. And they did so very successfully. The professoriate and the other professionals, they very successfully defended their kind of professional position often, and indeed social position. Um, and I'll talk uh, about that in the next sort of 40 minutes or so. So what I, uh, I'll begin my, uh, the discussion of my project by providing a little bit of historical context uh, about the book I'm working on, or research context rather. Um, I'll discuss how and why I'm debunking some of the established and received wisdoms about the nature of the Bolshevik and Soviet uh, project and the Russian Revolution. I'll discuss how um, I think what the causal mechanisms are accounting for this social resilience and reproduction of social structures and indeed inequalities in space and in time in Russian society. And then I'll talk, I'll bring us to the question of so what? Why does it matter now? Beyond the intrinsically historical interest, right? Why should we care? And just to anticipate the argument, we should care uh, from the point of view of current socioeconomic inequalities, but also from the point of view of uh, democracy uh, and potential for democratic change in Russia. So this re research I'll be talking about, it's uh, based on um, a book project I'm working on loosely, and I think the provisional title is going to be something like The Adaptive Society, right? And it already tells you about, you know, adaptation rather than destruction. Uh, and it is about the reproduction of pre-communist social structure and its implications long-term for economic development, socioeconomic inequalities in Russia, and, and democracy and democratization. And this uh, book project, some of the research that's already come out as I, as I work on it are papers I've published, one in World Politics, in which I talk about using statistical data about how, with, with uh, Alexander Ligman and Anastasia Budenkova, my co-authors, I talk about how the Bolsheviks basically appropriated the, the so-called bourgeoisie, the educated strata of pre-communist society, and they build on these foundations for their modernization project. But it also had profound implications for, uh, for, for social stratification, because essentially the people who were have-nots before the revolution or haves and, uh, and have-nots, you know, these same kind of structures of inequality were reproduced. And also, um, 
a couple of other papers we presented at various con uh, conferences. So my talk is, is, is titled uh, Personal as well as Professional Journey. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how intellectually speaking I came to this, this, this topic. Um, and, um, and, and this uh, sort of dates back to when I was a PhD student and I became interested in why Russian regions were developing so differently. Uh, some were more democratic and others were less. And uh, somewhat naively, in the early 2000s, one of my research projects was to try to explain different levels of democracy in Russian regions, which are color-coded here. The darker shaded uh, shades here means more democracy. The lighter means less democracy. And I somewhat naively tried to explain these variations with reference to what the the West uh, was doing, Western aid, Western democratic diffusion. So for me, and it was then a de rigueur at the time, you know, 1990s, early 2000s, we were all kind of very enthusiastic about democracy, European Union, Europeanization. And so I was looking at this map and thought, oh, these are the countries close to Finland. I know there are some people from Finland in the audience. That means because Finland was giving a lot of money to promote civil society projects. And there you go, the region of Karelia. That's the most democratic region. And these regions here, you know, St. Petersburg also, lots of aid. But then there were other kind of so-called anomalies, like here, these uh, regions in Western Siberia and even Eastern Siberia, which didn't fit into these simplistic explanations about geographic proximity to the West and diffusion, etc. And I started kind of digging deeper and deeper into the historical causes of this variation. And in so doing, I was speaking to this wider literature, uh, and some of you will be familiar with the literature, those of you working on political economy, uh, legacies of colonialism, etc. You know, Asimoglu and Robinson, they are very prominently associated with that line of thought of how the kind of legacies of the past dating back centuries, particularly legacies of specific institutions, like in the colonial settings in India, for instance, the institutions that British colonial power set up like parliamentary <coughs> democracy, arguably these are resilient and they have a kind of uh, long-lasting effect. Um, scholars have also looked at the long-lasting effects of slavery, for instance, or other kind of historical uh, historical processes that have long-lasting effects on human capital, social structure, institutions, etc. So, and there are also scholars who work on the legacies of communism. So, I started looking at these kind of historical uh, historical legacies, switching from temporarily temporarily shallow, as one scholar Herbert Kitchell put it, to temporarily deep explanations that go back into decades as to why we are observing uh, these variations. However, I should note that although scholars were turning to analyzing the long imprint of history in post-colonial settings in other post-communist states uh, like Hungary, Poland, um, Czech, uh, former Czechoslovakia, they, these kind of debates didn't really touch upon Russia because, again, the assumption is, well, the Bolshevik Revolution was just so awesome and so big and so destructive in its potential. So any kind, anything that we, we uh, discover in terms of durability of legacies would perhaps not apply to Russia because the destructive power of, of 
um, and the change, institutional, social, economic, political, inflicted on Russian society was just so profound that Russia is somehow outside of, of, of these debates. So the conventional wisdom sort of goes something like this, and I know that his, there are historians in the audience, perhaps correct me if uh, I'm wrong, but put, put it simply, the Bolsheviks destroyed the old social order, they created a new Soviet intelligentsia from scratch, um, they built new cities from scratch, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, in Siberia, etc. And over time, the logic goes that this new Soviet intelligence demanded democracy, and that's how Russia democratized, etc. So the, the emphasis is on what the Bolsheviks and what the Soviet um, state did, and a lot of it was destruction and creating something new from scratch. So where did these paradigms come from? Well, many of you... Uh, especially people from LIC will have heard about Sidney and Beatrice Webb, right? The Fabian socialists who were genuinely well-wishing social reformers. They, for instance, went to Russia. Stalin showed them around. They came back and published a book with the title Soviet Union, uh, or rather first I think it appeared as an article, A New Civilization with a Question Mark. The next edition came without the question mark in the affirmative, Soviet Union, A New Civilization. And uh, I have that book and I looked at it and reading now from, from the kind of, in, in this current uh, context, it does read quite bizarre in terms of how they really embraced all the narratives that the Soviet ideologues were feeding. And part of it was well-wishing because they were genuine, genuine social reformers. They wanted to create something similar, perhaps social equality in, in Britain as well. And they really bought into these narratives of how you know, the, 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 the poor were elevated from working class to intelligentsia and etc. etc. And uh, furthermore, what is interesting, there are some very prominent historians like Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick, University of Chicago, I believe. Um, a book as late as the 1970s, um, one book was called Cultural Revolution in Russia. She talked about social mobility, uh, in particular in education. She was extremely influential in kind of framing and influencing how we think about Soviet mobility. And I'm just giving you some, social, some quotes from Fitzpatrick work where she talks about a successful social revolution, a feat of social engineering, um, recruitment of peasants into command party positions, etc., etc., and a Soviet intelligentsia largely recruited from the working class. Now, even people, there was some, a scholar called Nicholas Timashev, I believe he was an emigre, and he was deeply skeptical about, you know, he obviously was anti-Bolshevik, but even he, writing from immigration in the 1940s, said that the upper classes were relegated to the bottom. Um, and uh, uh, so that this is how the kind of inverse social pyramid that he observed. So even kind of astute observers like him, who didn't have... Marxist kind of sympathies necessarily. They, they, this is the, the assumption that these people held. And what I, the way I see it is, if those of you who have read um, the American scholar James Scott's work, Seeing Like a State, you know, I kind of paraphrase it that the, the, these ac academics and observers, they saw like a Soviet state. In other words, they saw what was going on from a bird's eye view and from the perspective of 
the ideologues of the Soviet regime. And some people genuinely wanted to see social change in Russia. So they saw like a say what Soviet state, and in my analysis, these, these kind of perspectives, they defy what I call social logics. Logics of social resilience that have been discussed by sociologists in the West like the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, many of you will be familiar with his work, but also in uh, Thorsten Weblen in America, and Charles Steele, who wrote about durable forms of inequality that are resilient to change by policy or institutional fee. There are also scholars who talk about historical memory, and in my historical memory is actually a very broad label, but in my analysis it refers to something that goes within the family. Okay, the state might decide this is the policy, we're going to create equality, but the family is very important. Even in a totalitarian or so-called totalitarian state, it continues to have an imprint on the socialization of the next generation. So that's another kind of social logic that is very important. And the family socializes uh, the next generation and, and creates not just passes, trans, transfers material, um, material uh, kind of resources, but also human capital, cultural capital, etc. So I'm not actually inventing the wheel here. This is what's been told many times over by Western sociologists. Also, there are people who have written about the professions and bureaucracies, how they operate. They're very resilient to change. You know, so in some ways, in all of this was happening in the Soviet Union, the resilience of bureaucracies, the familial structures, and the kind of reproduction of these inequalities through the private sphere. Uh, but the, the wider narratives were about the destruction of these processes, and the assumption was that these logics of social resilience don't apply. They might apply somewhere else. And by the way, Pierre Bourdieu, for instance, he uh, didn't you know, did write his theories or didn't uh, discuss the, his the theorizing into social resilience uh, with, with reference to the communist context. So I, I guess the unspoken assumption is that it doesn't apply uh, there. So what I'm uh, talking about in my book is, in terms of causal mechanisms, I'm, I'm uh, distinguishing between several mechanisms of social reproduction. One is through the public sphere, and the Soviet state actually actively abetted and aided these reproductions of inequality, for instance, through the professions, because it needed to work with educated strata to prom pr promote its awesome modernization projects. It needed to work with teachers, doctors, engineers, academics. So people who were already educated were appropriated in the service of the Soviet regime. Those who were persecuted on ideological grounds, grounds, for instance, the aristocracy, many of these people too found refuge in what I call the margins of the public sphere. They, they kind of encost themselves in museums, provincial libraries. They became kind of archivists in various provincial places. And they, after Stalinist terror was over, some of these people emerged in very high um, kind of social positions. Then there was the, what I call the pop-up society, the Enlightenment Brigade of educated people, whether they had formal education credentials or not, who were simply made to work for the regime to promote illiteracy, campaigns against illiteracy, enlighten the masses, etc. And at the level of public uh, private sphere, the family and familial and kind of social networks played an important role in 
kind of in these structures of social reproduction. So if we talk about social resilience and try to make some conclusions about continuities with the imperial pre-Bolshevik past, we have to say something about this structure of imperial society. And this is where what I'm saying I think is something new in my book because nobody really touches the state. Again, the historians here might correct me if I'm wrong. When they talk about the Soviet period, nobody really talks about the estates. So estates were um, in law, in imperial Russia, juridical categories that kind of contributed to some of the inequalities that we associate with Tsarist society. So I've created something like a social pyramid but with um, a share of different uh, major estates. It was called the four estate paradigm, nobility, clergy, the urban estates, and the peasants. And you can see that uh, the peasants were, um, over, so Russia was an overwhelming peasant society based on the census of 1897 uh, data. Then there was about 10% of the so-called urban strata, and the Mishani is one of those sort of proto-bourgeoisie, uh, what I call proto-bourgeoisie. Um, some 10% of imperial population were in this category. A small percent were merchants. Why? Even though because uh, it was, you could transfer from Mishani to merchant estate, you had to pay a lot of money to become a first or second guild merchant. So extremely wealthy individuals became merchants, which is why the share of their population is very small, less than 1%. Then there were clergy, again, a juridical category, uh, less than 1%. And finally, the nobles, the aristocracy, the gentry, they were at the apex of the kind of the social pyramid, again, very small percentage, less than 2%. So what's the difference uh, between this kind of social order, which is the <coughs> system of estates represents, and a modern class-based society? Well, in a social order type system, um, social groups are officially hierarchized, and their rights and obligations are distinguished in legal terms. In a modern democratic, so social uh, democratic society, theoretically you can join any class, right? You have equal citizenship rights. There is a class system, but that's different from an estate uh, system. So Russia at the end of the 19th, uh, before the uh, 19th century and leading up to the Bolshevik Revolution, was actually combining these two elements of a modern society. Estates were becoming increasingly obsolete as a judicial category. Uh, and uh, more and more people from various estates, kind of, it was very fluid. People uh, became more educated, etc., etc. So there was an element of social mobility. However, if you see from these uh, literacy statistics leading up all the way to the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, you see that, uh, and if we take literacy as one strong indicator of social inequalities in Russia, the peasants remained overwhelmingly illiterate. So, um, so only 36% of peasants were literate, whereas those, that is those ascribed to the peasant estate with the nobility is 90%. And with the peasant, with the urban estates, they're almost double that of, in terms of literacy, that of peasants. So we see a highly unequal society, but we also see how rapidly Russia is changing. That's before the revolution, in terms of social economic development and evening out of these social inequalities, because uh, in 1897, at the time of the big census from which I draw data, 27% of peasants were um, 
literate by 1917, we see that 36% of the peasants are, uh, uh, so there is, a, there is a kind of increase that we are observing, but we still see that it's a highly, highly um, unequal society. So, um, so one of the, one of the uh, kind of research strands I'm working on is to understand how relational structures of social uh, society were reproduced from before the revolution to after revolution. When I say relational structures, I mean um, the, the, the kind of social structure, social pyramid, in terms of what happened to the haves before and after the revolution, what happened to the have-nots, right? Some of these are some of the same people in the 1920s, 1930s, and actually all the way up to 1950s, uh, you know, some people who were born before the revolution and had careers before the revolution, we could trace what happened to those people. So when I talk about, I talked about the different kind of arenas of uh, professional reproduction for the educated haves, and I distinguish, for instance, that nice uh, quaint photograph of, uh, um, you know, the family, a man with his little boy holding a bunny rabbit. So this is that man who is now in his... Um, ripe old age. Uh, he dies only in the 1950s, but that man was a veterinarian, and he was married to a woman of German origin in the region of Samara, educated bourgeois family, and what happens to this veterinarian? Well, his career just picks up just uh, like uh, nothing happened before, from before to after the revolution. He continues to be a successful veterinarian, career progression as, you know, kind of follows the typical trajectory of a veterinarian, um, at, you know, from before the revolution at the time. Uh, then there is, I talked about the, the uh, margins of the public sphere where the aristocracy kind of ensconced themselves for a while because they were, you know, some people like the Counts Galitsons and, and other prominent uh, aristocratic families, they, they were very vulnerable to persecution and witch hunts, etc. So um, here's a picture of the ancestor of one of the Galitsons, and I actually happened to have met uh, one of his descendants who is married to uh, somebody, a friend, a friend of a family, and I've read his memoirs. So. Um, I know what happened in, in the case of, 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 of that family, that he, he became a cartoonist, a successful kind of illustrator of children's books, and, and, and they did quite well through the Soviet period, and, and their descendants are also kind of the intelligentsia in Russia. Then there are people like what I call the cultural aristocracy of Russia. Some of you would recognize Nikita Mikhalkov. Anybody saw the film Burned by the Sun? I believe it won an Oscar some years ago. So Nikita Mikhalkov, his father, Sergei Mikhalkov, wrote the anthem of the Soviet Union. He then wrote a new Russian anthem under Putin. And this is the cultural aristocracy of present-day Russia. They are the movers and shakers of the worlds of arts. This man is very close to Putin as well. And guess who their ancestors were? They were aristocrats, they were ministers in Tsarist government, they were, um, uh, you know, prominent kind of nobles, uh, etc., generals, etc., very distinguished lineage. And then there are people like, this is from a recently serialized film, I believe, serialization of 
the novel by the writer Alexei Tolstoy, not to be confused with Leo Tolstoy, but although they were related, they were nobles as well. So Alexei Tolstoy embraced uh, being an despite being an aristocrat, he embraced uh, the, the Soviet Union. He wrote this kind of so semi-propagandist novel called The Road to Suffering Trilogy, and uh, and although it's fictional uh, people, it, it was very much based on uh, his, you know, the, it's almost semi-documentary about the, the revolution and the civil war and what happened afterwards. So then one of the protagonists is this woman called these two sisters, one of them is Katya, and she doesn't have any formal education whatsoever, but she's, a, uh, she's the daughter of a prominent doctor, she's well off and she's cultivated. So Katya uh, is called, summoned by the Bolshevik regime to kind of serve the cause of uh, promoting a, a social equality. And she talks to an official who says, you got, have to go and give these lectures in the villages or wherever. No need to panic. You're a cultured person. This is enough. In other words, that's all that's required. But she's simultaneously elevated because she's, you know, it's famine, famine. And she's told, well, you can have bread and butter and we'll give you these material perks. Uh, so that you know, so these this is, these are some of the mechanisms of the reproduction of inequalities that um, that we observe, and also I also kind of discuss another element of Bolshevik strategy. On the one hand, of kind of reinforcing the relational power of privileged individuals from Tsarist society. <laughs> But also, what Pierre Bourdieu calls the symbolic violence, actually physical, but also symbolic violence against poor, poor illiterate masses. By saying, by for, for instance, passing directives saying evil, calling people who refuse to participate in campaigns to eliminate illiteracy, they, they are called evil persons, zoosnelitsa, and and sometimes uh, material, uh, material and other punishments are meted against those people. So there is this kind of symbolic rhetorical violence against the downtrodden strata of Soviet, of of, of Tsarist, and then eventually Soviet society. Um, so these are some of the mechanisms. So now I come to, I, now I come to something sort of more systematic with what I did. I, I, it's just so you don't you don't uh, think that it's all about anecdotal kind of interesting anecdotes. I am doing some really serious number crunching, and I know poor Marnie is. is uh, um, I don't. I, so so I've got a PhD student who who has helped me produce this beautiful graph of what I believe, I have no idea what's going on, because she only gave this to me a day ago. But this is based on, I said, Marnie, I've got this, I found this incredible resource, 1916, that is before the revolution, a year before the revolution, I came across a publication which is kind of like, you know at LSE you have these, the web page, the web pages of different departments and everybody who is employed, their rank, position, professor, associate professor, all the names, etc., etc. Some of these people like Peter sit on different, you know, Peter is simultaneously 
the head of our department, international relations, but he's also, are you the head of the America Institute, the America Center? Yeah. So you're, you're kind of what they call in social network analysis, you're, you have a high network centrality. So you're, <laughs> you're like networked in different um, institutions. So what I discovered in that uh, directory of pre-revolutionary names of, for one region, um, pretty much everybody who could, or most people who we could put into the category of middle class, white collar employees of hospitals, schools, um, public banks, bureaucracies, charitable organizations, you name it, 4,000 people in total. So I said, Marnie, I got this great resource. How do we do social network analysis? Because I'm realizing that some of these people, the same person would be sitting on different networks, mm -hmm. but they're connected in ways that have a class dimension to it. So the, the, there's the elite network, networks, the middle class networks. So she produced this first graph, which I'm really looking forward to analyzing, but already we're seeing some interesting patterns. I'm assuming that the color coding, there's the pink network, the blue, and the orange. These are the different social networks. And I also have data for some of these people appear after the revolution, so I can trace uh, not only what en they ended up doing, but what kind of networks they were embedded so, uh, in. So that's uh, that's kind of the exciting uh, the exciting um, analysis that is yet to come. So most people, and I've published uh, bits and pieces in different journal articles, and probably you are wondering, well, what about the repression? What about Stalinist terror? Am I trivializing? And I, am I being a kind of terror denier here? Uh, you know, that's by no means the case. So um, if you see, in fact, terror and repressions are form very much a very important part of my statistical analysis and historical ethnographic analysis. And when I say this, so, so, so here's the map of the Gulag camps, the labor camps that the NGO Memorial that gathers as, as repression statistics, it's come up with this map of uh, the network of camps, and it's absolutely horrific. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of penal institu institutions uh, that dotted uh, uh, Russia. And I kind of conceptualize the this aspect of a Soviet development in terms of Jekyll and Hyde persona of the Soviet project. So the, the Dr. Jekyll um, would be the the kind of the nice, gentle persona, right? The the the, the perks that were provided to the, the, the educated strata and the support that Russia, that, that, that the regime provided in terms of, you know, basically elevating or seeking to elevate, um, and, and, you know, some people from poverty and creating basic structures of equality. So that's the kind of gentle side, but then there was the awful side of, of the Soviet modernization project. And, but what we're seeing, and I, 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 perform statistical analysis of the connection between the network of camps and modernization uh, patterns from before the revolution. And what we find, again, another myth punctured. So there is a myth that these camps were set in, in the middle of nowhere in inhospitable lands. Of course, many of these territories were inhospitable, for instance, here in the Far East. Uh, but, but they very closely followed modernization patterns from before the revolution. In other words, the Bolshevik 
set up these camps where there was already an educated, skilled labor force, and that already had factories and towns and urban infrastructure. And so that we perform statistical analysis, we very much find that the case. And what is interesting, there's increasingly a uh, historiography on that is questioning earlier historiography on the Gulag, which talks about these camps in terms of revolving doors, blurring between what went on inside and outside of of, of the camps. And um, you know, when I said I don't want to trivialize repressions, my own family, and I've got a picture of this gentleman here. Oops, uh, is my father, and I only, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, those of us who, who grew up in the Soviet Union know that people didn't really talk about repressions, right? Only in the 1990s and 2000s, you, you know, you, it's, things started coming out of the closest because people were too horrified to. And so as I was working on my project, I started asking uh, questions of my father. And, you know, just a couple of years ago, over a cappuccino and cheesecake in Washington, D.C., we were sitting in a cafe, and he told me that he was born in the Gulag. And to me, that was just inconceivable, and that he was born to parents who established a romantic liaison in the Gulag, subsequently got married, and they, they lived together for several decades, very close marriage, wonderful, happy family. Uh, but they, they had this boy, my son, and you know when he was born, because they were still in the camps, and why were they in the camps? My father, my grandfather said a joke about Stalin. He was thrown, into, uh, thrown in, and my grandmother, um, she was carrying ration cards. That was during the war, and she lost them. She was on the bus, and somebody stole those food ration cards. She was also thrown in. But they were kind of Soviet middle class people, and they found each other, met there, uh, and, and, and established a family. When he was born, because they were still in the camps, my father was sent to live with his grandmother, who was still living in the same place, ancestral homeland in the middle of Olga region, who read Bibles to him, and who was a Baptist. She wasn't even Orthodox. And this was at the height of Stalinism. So when we talk about you know, societal change, destruction, think about what was happening during Stalin's time. A boy was, re was re raised on Bible stories. You know, people were marrying in the camps. And you know, people who were, lived in ancestral lands were, by the way, I visited that village. Uh, last year, and half the village is Lankins, and they still tell you that in this part of the village live the Baptists, in this part of the village live the Molokans, which is another kind of quasi-Protestant group in Russia, and this is where the Protestants live, and this is all decades after, you know, communist, communism has survived uh, this, um, uh, the, the, the communist uh, experience. So it certainly is a thought-provoking for, for my research and certainly gives a lot of uh, material um, and, and kind of provides me with reflections, which also feed into a kind of dovetail with some of the revisionist historiography that I am coming across. So, um, so when we talk about the reproduction of uh, modernization variations, so let's put the question of social inequalities aside. If we talk about why did some regions in Russia develop differently, why are some more developed than others historically, um, despite this Bolshevik revolution, despite all the change and 
policy change that happened under the Bolsheviks. So uh, we could talk about two main causal mechanisms. One is that they simply appropriated the infrastructure that was there from before the revolution, shamelessly so, because I'll give you another anecdotal example. One region I'm working on, Samara, which is my case study region, it has a, um, anybody has been to Russia here? Anybody knows Zhigulovskaya Piva? <laughs> so Zhigulovskaya is this, is this iconic beer brand, and it's iconic Soviet beer brand, or so it is promoted. But it was actually, uh, they expro appropriated this uh, beer enterprise of the von Vakano, who was an Austrian and ran this successful beer enterprise in the middle Volga region. But now we associate, and this is what they did with lots and lots of different, they changed the name, the brand, you know, name, but essentially the production uh, infrastructure. And the people who worked in those places remained the same people. Of course, you know, there was uh, then generational change. Uh, and of course, so I distinguish between the hardware that they appropriate and the software, that is the people with their skills, with their human capital. And because spatial variations in development were different, so they, these, these same spatial variations in geography, they were reproduced because areas that were already modernized continued to be becoming more modernized, and areas that were, uh, you know, especially rural areas, the peasantry in Russia had the most raw deal because they were kind of forced into something like some uh, neo-serfdom because the uh, restrictions of on mobility were placed. Uh, they could not move. Uh, without you know getting special permission, and so these kind of variations in socioeconomic status, they they, they were also vi uh, visible in in space. And how do we know that? Well, I've also performed statistical analysis. Uh, most scholars who work with Russian data usually uh, how are we doing for time? Peter? We're fine. We're fine. So usually, uh, and, I, and my, myself included, we uh, in Russia, as those of you who work on Russia will know there are, there are 80 plus regions, and uh, most of us work with those regional data, and including myself, um, until of course I realized that if I want to create historical continuities, analyze historical continuities, it's, it's just not a good uh, unit of analysis because in Russia after 1917 there were significant administrative changes uh, regions were carved up divided, subdivided so the better unit of analysis is district and I matched imperial districts with their administrative equivalents um, after the revolution um, and so I now have almost 2,000 observations to work with and you get much more fine-grained Analysis and the main data I use are uh, the 1897 population census, which is basically the first and the last major imperial census, and it's incredibly detailed. Gives you information about social structure, estates, literacy, etc. Et and we find some interesting patterns. Um, when I say we, it's because um, I don't have the computational skills to perform all the kind of uh, sophisticated statistical analysis. I usually do that with my co-author, Alexander Liebman. Um, and so he, he's an economist and he does some cool uh, stuff, including uh, this, this graph here. It's something he produced for one of our papers. But this is just a simple uh, linear uh, kind of regression that shows that literacy in the imperial era uh, significantly correlates with the share of university graduates in the Russian regions and districts. 
uh, we, you know, up all the way to the present, to the to the uh, twenty twenty ten and and, uh, uh, and onwards. Um, and uh, coming back to the question of, of the Gulag, we also did statistical analysis that showed that you know if you compare the areas where the, the Bolsheviks located, the camps or uh, the Soviet leaders. Uh, with those where no camps existed, you see that they, the, the camp areas had higher human capital, they had more literate populations, so uh, those without the gulag had slightly lower literacy rates than those with the gulag. Uh, for instance, the um, share of peasants was actually higher in areas that had no gulag. So in other words, rural areas were less likely to uh, get those camps because, as I, as I was saying, it's areas that already had factories and industrial infrastructure that became sites for these camps. And also, in terms of social structure, there were more foreign foreigners. There was also, by the way, a census category. Uh, usually, Europeans they were tended to be uh, significantly more educated, more literate than the, the, the native uh, Russians. So. So these were more, these areas had, with Gulag tended to have had in the imperial period more foreigners, and uh, what else is interesting? And they had more nobles as well. So these are kind of more developed, more high human capital um, areas. So I've already talked about uh, the, the causal mechanisms that, that um, I think are driving some of the variation that uh, we observe in space, not just in terms of socioeconomic development over time, but also in terms of democratic proclivities of, of Russian uh, citizens, because uh, basically areas that were already more open had uh, populations with higher human capital before the revolution uh, continued to kind of remain, continue to have an, an edge in that sense. And that explains some of the variation that we observe in Russian regions, and this is, I won't bore you too much with regression results, but this is just, uh, again, some of the analysis that Alexander Liebman, my co-author, did, and we, we analyzed, using district-level data, the effects of literacy on voting for democratic candidates in, uh, in the 1960s, for instance, elections for Yeltsin, I'm not saying that Yeltsin was a Democrat, but those of us analyzing Russian um, Politics usually take that often as a kind of proxy for um, for kind of democratic vote. We also constructed democracy indices, and again, the Van Hanen indexes, the index of democratic variation. Again, we find that areas that were more literate in the imperial period are significantly more likely to be more democratic in in, in the 1996 elections, which is. Uh, the presidential election of the 1990s when it was still kind of meaningful to talk about some form of democratic process in Russia. Um, and that holds even when we control for modern present-day indices of modernization such as urbanization or, you know, uh, and other kind of infrastructure developments uh, that indicate indicators. So, so those are, that's about the variations uh, in, in space and how they are linked to the past socioeconomic developmental trajectories. So you're probably asking, well, what about the social structure? 
how do I bring us back to the question of social inequalities? Um, so spatial analysis, that is analysis of variations in regions, that's one way of exploring the reproduction of historical legacies um, across time. And it's more difficult for me to kind of trace continuities in social structure for the entire 70 years of Soviet rule. I've showed you some social network analysis that I'm trying to do, but at the moment I'm just asking broader questions about uh, not just spatial variations, which are basically resulting in a very divided country. And that is relevant to debates, you know, those of you who are following American politics, you know, you have the, the Rust Belt, you have the Deep South, etc. Very deep, deep uh, divisions, social divisions that are kind of uh, 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 that are evident at the level of variations in kind of political geography, socioeconomic geography. So some scholars have talked about four Russias, Russia of rural areas, Russia of um, small towns, Russia of big towns, Russia of um, uh, ethnic minority groups, in that these are very different politically, these are very different um, constituencies, they vote differently, they have different levels of support for Putin, for instance, the, the current leader in Russia. So there are these kind of deep divisions at the level of space, and I could trace those to these broader historical legacies, but I'm also thinking more about what does it mean for, for social mobilization, social um, kind of cross-class alliances, potential for people to form a cohesive movement, and because I st also study protests in Russia, what does it mean for people's capacity to mobilize? Because when we actually hear about protests in Russia, you know, the so-called pro-democracy protests with people holding goodbye Putin slogans, usually it's the so-called sophisticated urbanites. It's usually people in big cities or regional capitals, and who are those people? They're the intelligent the white-collar employees, and, and what I'm trying to explore now, and I'm going for a fieldwork trip to Russia tomorrow, to talk to some of the activists, is what, what, what is the likelihood of these sophisticated urbanites of forming alliances with people from other socioeconomic groups? Do they talk to each other? Because when we hear about protests, it's usually uh, kind of politically highly informed, educated people, or people involved in engaged in post-material kind of uh, environmental campaigns or cl let's clean our parks campaigns. But again, this is very urban, educated, kind of middle class phenomenon. And the question is, um, you know, what is the extent of kind of people joining forces together against, uh, and what interests me again, what is the potential for kind of cross-class uh, mobilization um, in, in Russia, given these socioeconomic inequalities, which I think, by the way, is deeply rooted and historically historically so, as, as my analysis shows. So just to sh illustrate some of these divisions at the level of kind of cognitive frameworks, and this comes through some of the interviews that uh, my researchers helped me perform in this region of Samara. I'm looking, uh, I'm, I'm analyzing. So this is a museum worker, right? But he, so he's a white collar, middle class, but he has says, oh, are you a Samaravite? Are you native to the town of Samara? And he's kind of very awkward. He says, well, I simply have this situation. I've always lived on the outskirts of Samara. Well, specifically, oh, I've lived in Metalurk. 
So metallurgy is like, you already the name says it's like this metallurgical factory. It's probably one of those, you know, in France you have these banlieues, you know, this kind of on the outskirts kind of working class district. And so he has this at the level of a kind of, as, as, as Bourdieu would say, he knows his place at a kind of cognitive level. Um, and so the, uh, the researcher says, well, that's not an outlying district anymore. And he says, well, that's um, outskirts because after all, there's a certain cultural identity there which is different from that in the center. The center is historical Samara and there's the outskirts. So I've spoken to lots of people in Samara and they all tell me that there's this Bizinyanka, uh, uh, region, which uh, district, which is working class, and then there's like old Samara, which is like you know cultural and sophisticated. So these are the kind of divisions who talk about Russia. Don't really uh, people who talk about Russia don't really talk discuss very much. But I think that's very important um, for understanding kind of broader trends in Russian politics and society. So I promise to talk to you, give you the so what question at the end. Why should we care? Why does it matter? What does my research contribute to the broader debates that are ongoing as you know, the world is kind of slipping more. To, you know, we have all these debates about rising populism. And rising populism, by the way, is, as we know, largely a product of socioeconomic inequalities that are growing and widening and with globalization. And my view, globalization only reinforced some of these historical, deep-seated kind of uh, inequalities um, in space and across society, in Russia and in other contexts. And what my research also kind of helps problematize is, those of you who have read Thomas Piketty's book will remember on, on Capital in the 21st century, which is a very influential book, you will remember that he talked about how the global shocks like wars, notably the First World War and the Second World War, and of course something like a revolution, of course, uh, have a redistributive effect, a source in, in, the, in other words, socially equalizing effect. So what Piketty says is basically the reason why we observe a kind of more equality after the Second World War for kind of some a few years is because you know things like these are the kind of shocks that wipe away people's savings and they have a redistributive, socially equalizing effect. And where I, what I have a problem with is the kind of materialist understanding of inequalities. And, and I think my work is more in sync with Pierre Bourdieu's work, which talks about other aspects of inequalities that are related to material inequalities, but are also um, kind of socially endogenous in that they're not easily amenable to policy or redistributive shocks, because there is like within the private domain, within society, there are kind of uh, mechanisms that drive inequalities outside and separate from, you know, the policy and the kind of broader political and institutional um, sphere. So I leave us at that, and uh, and uh, if you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to to uh, answer them. Thank Great, Jamila. Thank you very much. So maybe I'll uh, exercise the chair's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, so this is a very interesting um, argument about um, kind of the 
the imprint, the lasting kind of imprint of the imperial era, the pre-Soviet era. Um, I, I guess my, um, and I, you know, the the correlation you are describing, kind of the, in a sense, the regional variation before and the regional variation after and the kind of overlap is... Um, is persuasive, it'll even be more persuasive when you've worked out the network analysis, <laughs> but it looks pretty. Um, but uh, I guess I have a question about the mechanics of it. Um, uh, so one way, it seems to me, to interpret what you're, you're showing here is um, that uh, that Soviet leaders, in a sense, dealt, and I think this was the thrust of, that Soviet leaders dealt with different regions differently, so that they adopted different strategies, so that the reason that you see um, that the variations that existed early on continue, that you see that inequality, it had something to do with in a sense, them accommodating themselves to these kind of deep structural realities on the ground. Um, alternatively, it seems to me you could argue, and I don't think these are, um, uh, that, I mean, both can be true, that, that the um, different regions were, um, some regions were just simply better prepared in a sense because of their structural advantages um, to be able to withstand um, kind of pickities like, you know, kind of the shock of the, of the system. And um, so I guess the question is, is can you, uh, like, talk a little bit about the mechanics of it? Um, I mean, are both of these things... True, you know, I was very interested when you talked at the very end too about like the protest movements. Like I would be, uh, maybe you're doing this work. Like how the protest movements map on to uh, the kind of regional differences um, early on. I mean, because that that would also be a really arresting way to, um, you know, uh, I, I mean. Uh, uh, you could develop the argument here, but it would still leave open the question of the mechanics of whether Soviet leaders were kind of more hands-off in some places uh, or, in a sense, people in some places were basically better prepared to fight or to hold on to what they had. Um, so. Thank you very much. This is a great question, and um, yeah, obviously I didn't have the time to go into this, but that's something that also actually one of the referees raised this as I was like working on a journal article, um, raised this, I think, very valid point that, uh, that in the various regions, you know, these managers, these kind of middle class people who, who benefited because they were educated and they were already in positions of like white collar occupations, they were also very savvy in bringing in resources through communist party channels to their regions, so they, they lobbied, and so there's that channel as well, that, and that's kind of also specific to the Soviet institutions and how they work, because there was a lot of tug and pull in terms of 
struggle for resources that managers engaged with, and the kind of managers in, in regions that already had very significant enterprises, they could leverage this kind of we're too big to fail kind of thing. Yeah. And they, they, they had their channels to Communist Party and they lobbied. And so they actually brought resources, brought more resources to the areas that were already developed. So, so that's kind of one of the channels. In terms of withstanding shocks, um, I think it's certainly that's um, you know the the high human capital areas. I think they they, they simply um, you know I think the the mechanism there was that these are areas that had kind of the infrastructure in place. So they, these are the areas that had more hospitals, more schools, better developed schools, and certainly in Samara, I'm seeing the again that's one of the myths of the uh, the, the Soviet. Um, ideologues is that Russia was this backward country and they created universities and education. Well, Samara had dozens of schools, mm. private, state, all kinds of evening courses. It was a very modern place before the revolution. So these are the, they just continued to function. And I'm actually tracing the reproduction. So one school I found where you know the same teacher who used to teach in that school from before the revolution continued to manage that school after the revolution, but they called it a Soviet school. So it's very difficult, and it became like an elite elite school that eventually got closed down, but all the teachers were moved to a different school, which also became an elite school. But it's all, it's intrinsic to what I call the ecology of a place. You know, there, and, 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 you know, in some regions, you know, in Samara, maybe because that's Samara and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of biased, but they would tell me that we didn't have as many, um, as many repressions as did other regions. We just have, we're just more tolerant. And so supposedly there are these kind of cultural mechanisms that are again intrinsic to the way the place developed before the revolution. So this is one of the, um, Sort of, I think it's, it's very complex, and, and certainly it's not something that's amenable to one mm-hmm. kind of causal explanation. But it's a lot of these uh, elements are connected. And on on um, on the protests, um, so um, so so for protests, what I find, and and as with a lot of like voting, etc that all good things go together. And that's a problem. Those of us who are working on Russia, trying to unpack the causal mechanisms, there's always endogeneity because, well, this, the, the, you know, it, oh, this region of Samara, for instance, or St. Petersburg, to give an even, an e- or Moscow, to give an even more obvious example, you know, there's just so much going on there. There are people, more people are protesting, but it's because more people are educated there, and they also vote democratic, and it's also more developed region, and it has more foreign investment, so what's causing what? It's very hard. But with protests, very much we're seeing this pattern. Russia is a very divided country. It's the same regions who are uh, the, 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 that keep, you know, and I, I have I gathered statistics on protest activism for the years, and um, it's usually there are high mobilization regions, that there are kind of regions where the population is more passive and less likely to mobilize, and we can link that to... Um, employment and labor and social structure, which is in turn related to these broader historical um, mm-hmm. historical. Patterns. That's great. Uh, questions. 
We've got one right up here. Okay. Hold on, they'll bring you a mic. That's a really wonderful talk, which I, I learned a lot. One question I do have. Um, do you think, though, that um, one positive thing about the Soviet system, that some problems with it, and then you've got some positive things now and the problems. But I think the main achievement in my own life of the Soviet Union was to help them with the fascist attack which took place the 22nd so, so of June. Could you repeat that, please? So, Pardon? Could you repeat your last sentence? I said, I thought that the main achievement of the Soviet Union was to defeat the fascist attack which started on the 22nd of June 1941 when Hitler attacked with a fascist coalition. Now, I have a theory that the structure of the Soviet Union, the Marxist ideology, which I don't fully agree with, but did at least help defeat this attack, which was the worst enemy Russians had in history, and I think it remains so. Could you say anything about that? Uh, the question? The, the defeat, uh, uh, defeat of, of again, and if I were to link it to my research project, again, some of the myths that, you know, so, so, um, Samara, again, that region I, I'm working on, um, it became, a, during the war, it became a, a substitute capital. The embassies were moved from Moscow to Samara, and the in, a lot of the industries were relocated. But the choice of Samara was uh, as this kind of bulwark that was became the industrial hub that helped produce the the military hardware and the boots and the military uniforms for the soldiers. So why Samara? Well, because it was already a very developed uh, place before the revolution. And, uh, and I think uh, certainly um, Russia played a role in, in defeating uh, you know, uh, Nazi, Nazi Germany, but we also know at what cost. We know, for instance, that Stalin would say if you're if you're um, turning, if you're um, turning yourself and surrendering, there's no way back. You will be shot when you go back. So there was that added, uh, perhaps, yes, and, and the, the cost was uh, significantly. Uh, back there, yeah. Hi, uh, I have a question regarding uh, the development, the political mobilization regarding Russian regions. There are like recent studies, and also yourself talked about that there are different degree of uh, political mobilization across Russian regions. Like today, you see uh, even like Russia's becoming more like a competitive authoritarian system. You also see those like electoral results from places like St. Petersburg or uh, Yakutsk. They are more like um, more, I would say, more vibrant results comparing other places. And uh, you also said that uh, it's like, also I read like some recent studies on that, like historically, like uh, during the pre-war, like uh, Imperial Russian era, those areas had like more, I don't know, more, like more vibrant civil society, things like that. My question is that, uh, is this suggesting that uh, uh, modernization and the social structure basically stagnated during the Soviet era? Uh, since you see the very, very strong influence ho of that part of historical legacy on that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I think that's a good question. It's, uh, so it's not so much a stagnation. It was more that the more developed regions were kept getting more resources. So yes, there was influence of the Soviet modernization project as well uh, in terms of 
kind of channeling resources to areas that were already building universities that already had universities before. Because to, 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 to create a university, you need educated, skilled workforce. So there was that dimension. So it wasn't that you know, simple things were conserved, but that uh, areas that were more developed received that extra, extra boost. Um, and, and certainly, I'm not negating the, the in importance of Soviet development, but there are two, two sides of the question here. One is that Russia, as I was uh, alluding to in my, with some statistical tables, was already a rapidly modernizing society. Literacy rates were improving. I certainly see that in my research on Samara, I'm seeing that um, uh, in, in that statistical yearbook that I have, uh, from one year to the next, the number of school goes up. There are like 10 new schools, for instance, or 15, and you know, thousands of new. So, so things were happening, and, and, and so the question is, would Russia just keep modernizing? How, what would have been the rate of modernization without the Bolshevik project? And that's, that's a question. You know, there's a lot of soul searching, you know, and I've seen interesting historical studies that argue that Russia would have kept modernizing, but. And, but without the cost, the human costs that were inflicted by the Soviet, by the revolutionary leaders. Oksana. Uh, thank you very much for the amazing talk. And uh, my question will be about the cross-class alliances. I was thinking about maybe you could look at it from different perspective, you are talking about challenging authoritarian rule, but I was specifically thinking about this newly emerged class of new Russians who were new rich after the breakdown of the Soviet Union and who kind of formed this elite class for the last 20, 30 years. So isn't it that maybe it's, I, I struggle to see the cross-class alliance, to be honest, but I can see the connection between this new rich and older elite uh, um, uh, uh, populations and for instance to uphold authoritarian rule because what I also derive from your account is that they were successful and they survived because they adapted and because they were this intelligent and educated class who embraced this powerful crushing machine and they survived it and people who tried to withstand it and be against it got really, really crushed. So maybe I was just wondering whether you look at it from this perspective, that maybe these cross-class alliances, the way they are drawn, they can be not to challenge authoritarian rule, but actually, contrary to our expectations and hopes, maybe to uphold this authoritarian rule, which is very strong in Russia historically. Yeah, actually, that is that is a really good question, and I have to say that my project started off, and as I say, naively, you know. 20 years ago, I was talking about democracy. Now I'm thinking more about inequalities. And I don't think, I, I have kind of lost the illusions I had about, you know, this. we have this, all this modernization paradigm that modernization will lead to um, a kind of population that will demand democratic change. But certainly we are seeing this paradigm challenged. And I think in Russia, uh, you know, post-1990s, certainly in the 1990s, you're absolutely right. The, the people who were white collar, you know, intelligentsia, they did very well compared to the rest of the population. Some of these people, like Boris Berezovsky, one of the oligarchs, 
who subsequently fell out with Putin, but he was one of the oligarchs. He was a physicist who worked in a think tank. You know, these were the intelligentsia, they were the professoriate, academics, researchers, and some of the, and uh, Khodorkovsky was a Komsomol activist. These people were embedded in the system. They used the kind of the Soviet institutions, and they did quite well after, and they were no Democrats by no stretch of imagination. So I'm kind of myself questioning this notion that because people are educated, they will necessarily embrace democracy. And I'm interested more from the point of view of, um, you know, what does it what does it mean for, yes, overall, you know, this kind of social consensus. I don't know, social divisions, social alliances. Um, and, and certainly I'm thinking more in terms of authoritarian resilience rather than democratic change. You know, why, why are autocrats resilient? And what role do these educated people play? In, um, you know, I'm certainly not seeing in my research that uh, the educated intelligentsia in Russia are necessarily challenging or protesting. You know, some of them are you know, they, they're civically active in a civic sense. They would go out and um, and uh, join um, a clean air campaign, but they're not necessarily going out and saying Putin go. So, you know, I'm kind of questioning this whole paradigm of modernization and democracy myself. So, but social inequality, I think that's something that's very interesting, and I certainly want to keep kind of probing into what's the historical cause of these kind of social dynamics in Russia. Go ahead. So, like, at the end of your talk, you said that you think that social inequality is enforced by globalism and uh, globalization, sorry, and um, could you maybe elaborate on that? Sure. So, so what, um, what I was referring to is, is from just very uh, superficial observations, readings about what is happening in America and, and, and some other Western contexts where... Um, you know, where um, where some people have left vulnerable because, you know, people who are educated and, and have been, you know, have that kind of cultural education capital, they continue to do well in the context where, you know, there is a market for, global market for skills, for uh, for kind of intellect, for you know those sorts of people who don't have those skills, and some of this is kind of historically driven and rooted. They they don't do so well in this kind of context of cutthroat, um, you know, kind of um, economic model. If you see what I mean, and 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 in Russia, I'm thinking about the. The fall of the Soviet Union, right, when Russia became a capitalist country and, um, and uh, you know, market developed, etc., it's the people with skills, it's the skilled uh, workforce that did comparatively well compared to the people who are now at the bottom of Russian society. You know, again, it's the peasantry who always got a really raw deal. People in collective farms, uh, you know, people living in small towns who used to work as blue-collar employees in factories that are no longer operating. These people could not adapt in the same way as, you know, people like myself who could just go and uh, study abroad and work abroad. And, you know, and so these are the kinds of inequalities that are partly related to some of these global processes whereby, 
you know, the, the world is like no borders, we can all move to, we work where, where our skills are in high demand, but it's people with a certain kind of socioeconomic profile who do better than others. And this is, you know, this is the kind of unfortunate byproduct of, of I don't know whether globalization or what, maybe there's another term for that, but... Right back here. Let me make this the last question. Thank you very much. Uh, three brief points. First of all, um, analysis of those who were killed in the Gulag, um, I think, would add to the, the picture that you've uh, put, because I suspect that the, the distribution was not quite uh, as you've indicated elsewhere. Secondly, as far as Samara is concerned, Presumably, a few investment decisions like the Togliati factory and so on had a, a disproportionate uh, influence on the subsequent uh, economic prosperity. And thirdly, uh, the specific, I mean, looking at uh, Ukraine, for example, and the famine uh, and starvation in the 19, early 1940s, I think uh, may put a slightly different complexion in terms of the resilience of the of the uh, bourgeoisie, but I'm not sure about that, I suspect. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. These are great questions. So first of all, you really pick up on, with the gulag, absolutely. When I talk about camps, this was one aspect of the Soviet repression machinery, and I could statistically analyze where the camps were located, uh, and you know, uh, in terms of the, the links with past modernization. Um, absolutely, you're right. The repression touched everyone. And in terms of space, I think it's probably even not, in terms of you know, how it affected even different socioeconomic groups, pretty much nobody could, could escape. And it was very random in many cases. It wasn't just the bourgeoisie or the aristocracy. You mentioned the famine, you know, collectivization, peasants. You know. So a lot of different groups suffered millions of people. In one year in 1937, tens of thousands of people got shot. Um, so that, that is certainly, unfortunately, I can't create a socioeconomic profile of you know, uh, who was affected the most. There were different purges, waves. In one wave, you know, the doctor's plot, and there was the, the engineer's plot. So particular groups suffered more in some years over others. Um, women, by the way, suffered le uh, were less vulnerable to repression. That's another kind of new in the historiography of the Gulag that there was, a, you know, this kind of quote unquote humane aspect to repression, which is interesting. That you know, the, the male house head of household would be repressed, the child would be put in a foster home, but the woman would be spared. And so, certainly, I'm not negating that, and and certainly with the famine. Um, that, uh, by the way, the middle of Olga, not just the Ukrainian famine, so Samara is one of those uh, regions that suffered horrifically in, in the famine in the 1920s. Um, and again, I'm coming across archival, very, very painful archival sources. That so I showed you one of the letters from the professoriate where you know the, the prof one of the professors is writing that some professors simply simply couldn't survive the famine and died, you know, because they were working in such horrific and awful conditions. Um, but in spite of that, what is interesting is that there was a sense of there was some kind of element of normality. 
at the same time. So there's farming going on in the Volga region. So the professoriate, the colleagues in the professoriate are dying because of starvation. The Red Cross is delivering food aid, and there are, I even have a list of addresses of the professors and the names of professors who received Red Cross food bank type aid. So horrific conditions, and yet academic process goes on, students are enrolled, there are like elaborate discussions about how much fees should be charged from different people. So uh, what I'm saying is, in my historical analysis, I'm coming across this bizarre kind of combination of normality that people are just tr just trying to get on with lives despite the deaths and all this awful stuff happening around them. So I'm just trying to um, kind of take us away, and that's again something that's uh, kind of has programmed us to focus only on repression and not think about the continuities that were happening simultaneously. Think of the names of the titles of books like Gulag, Bloodlands. These are the books from the last few. Timothy Snyder is wrote the book Bloodlands. You know, we think about destruction. Whereas, read archival sources. You you see kind of some semblance of normality. It's, it's, it's very um, strange. Now, on Tagliati, that's another, actually, case I'm looking at because Tagliati, as you point out, it was, it's a city that grew, like, phenomenally. It used to be a sleepy provincial town called Stavropol na Volge. Then they actually had to move part of the town because I think there was a dam or something, one of those projects. But um, in terms of the social structure, a lot of the same people in the, who lived in that area subsequently, uh, you know, stayed on and became the social core of the new Taliati. Uh, Taliati also got people from all over the Soviet Union, but many of them married locally. So there is this dimension of kind of social reproduction, despite the fact that it is indeed, as you pointed out, it's a city that got massive investment, um, new automobile factory, but it wasn't your complete underdeveloped backwater even before the revolution because it was already, it was part of Samara, Kubernia, which was a booming, absolutely booming uh, place and it had the human resources that were also used partly uh, when uh, the Soviets developed Tariati into this kind of industrial giant that it now is. Very good. I think we've we've reached the um, bewitching hour. Um, Tamila, thank you for a really stimulating uh, presentation on a like a big thing project that I think is going to be of great interest to people working on development and democracy and and uh, political and economic uh, geography. Um, it's kind of a big project that a professor should be working on, so it's terrific. Please join me in uh, thanking uh, Camilla. Martin.